Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady. My co-host, Matt Scott, is actually bringing in a container filled of goodies from Australia, so he's not with us this morning. Today, I have a, a very cool couple and their son in the studio. We've got Eric and Brittany Highland from The Hourless Life, and their son, Caspian, is here in the studio as, as well. He may uh, join us at some point during the recording, which is really fun, so it's great to have you guys with us today. Thank you so much much for taking the time. I'm really excited to hear about the journeys that you guys have done since 2014, if I read that correctly, and the journey that you're about to undertake, which is just absolutely fascinating. So thank you both for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you, Scott. We're huge fans of the podcast. So just to be here is a little surreal for us. (laughs) Yeah. I've been listening since episode one and I remember putting up an article about the podcast when it first came out because I was so excited about it. So this is amazing. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. This week's episode is supported in part by Rumpel Blankets. Rumpel started literally in the back of a van. Their story is interesting. They were on a surf and ski trip through California and the founders of Rumpel were sleeping in a van several miles up a dirt road near a secret hot springs. They woke up the next morning in sub-zero temperatures in a car that wouldn't start. They were outside of cell reception and confronted with the real possibility of a long walk into town. So instead they decided to bundle up in their sleeping bags and drink whiskey while they waited for someone else to show up. And that turned into hours and the conversation extended on to the subject of bedding and they came up with Rumple Blankets. Their most popular product is the original Puffy Blanket. It is their flagship product and it's available in a one-person, a two-person, and a junior size. I have used the two-person for many years. I keep it as part of my kit that lives in the vehicle just in case I run into a situation similar similar to what they did, where I'm stranded and need some additional warmth and insulation. It's also really useful for around the campfire when you want that little bit of extra comfort. Um, I'll also use it when sleeping in the vehicle, and then they are just the right size for a roof tent as well. So these are really high quality blankets that are weather resistant. They're made from recycled materials. They're washable, and they have very durable fabrics and construction, which makes them ideal for overland travel. Check out Rumpel for your next blanket. What I found so cool is the fact that you guys are not only traveling with your son, Caspian, but he was actually born during your travels. And I don't have children myself. I have nephews that I'm so grateful for, and I've been able to be a part of their life since since they were born, but uh, I don't have my own children. So we want to have more of that on the podcast. So that way, those that are listening with families, they can learn from those who have been traveling like you too have uh, with your son. So how how was it like to have a newborn during your travels? So we started traveling full-time in February 2014, and Caspian was born in December of 2016. So we had been traveling full-time for a while. And at the time, it was very unique, very different. A lot of our community thought we would stop traveling because I was pregnant and we were going to have a baby. Of course, you have to get off the road and stop Mm. traveling. But we didn't believe that the two were mutually exclusive, nor did we believe that we couldn't have a healthy family and a healthy child while traveling full-time. And, and we had been traveling full-time already for what, three years? Mm-hmm, nearly. So, yeah, almost three years mm-hmm. uh, just as a couple. And so that wasn't new to us. So the idea of bringing in our son into that lifestyle, mm-hmm. it didn't really seem that overwhelming. To we us. could picture how it was going to work because yeah. we had such a good rhythm mm-hmm. and we did slow down. So we were still living in an RV at the time and yeah. we slowed down the last trimester. My 
my pregnancy and his first six sure. months when it felt like we were at the doctor every other day <laughs> during that yeah, time. Sure. But the second that he uh, turned six months, we were back on the road traveling full time. And, wow. and that was the hardest part. His, uh, his doctor wouldn't let us leave for six months. He wanted to make sure that, you know, he had a good start to life that and whatnot. Sense. So we were kind of holed in Austin, Texas, and we were chomping at the bit <laughs> to get back on the road. History certainly supports the idea that kids can be mobile in that way. If you think about what an infant would have endured that was born during a wagon trip across the United States to the West Coast, which happened on a regular basis, they're quite durable. Again, I I don't have my own kids, so I'm not trying to assume that I know anything because I don't know anything. They are extremely durable. Yeah, but they're quite durable. And historically, they have been moved and carried. And you think about even roaming bands and roaming tribes now, even in current times, their kids are with them and they survive. I think they just need their mom. Occasionally, they may need their dad, but they really need their mom. If they've got their mom, then they're going to be pretty safe and happy and healthy. So... That's been our experience. The two words that I always use to describe Caspian are friendly and flexible. And really all he needs is us. And if we're there and we're okay. Yeah. And rolling with the punches. So we might confront a challenge, but as long as we take it in stride, he follows suit Mm. automatically. And and I think there's something interesting about Caspian in that he went directly from the birthing room of the hospital to a lifestyle of full-time travel. So he's never known a life apart from this. And so he doesn't have anything to compare it to, Scott. And so when Brittany says he's flexible, you know, we'll do a five-hour drive in the Jeep and he'll say... That wasn't very long, (laughs) you know, and I remember him saying that at three years old, what three-year-old says that a five-hour trip in a vehicle isn't long. The one kid in history that hasn't said, are we there yet? Right. Exactly. That's Caspian. (laughs) That's Caspian. But how amazing is that? And and I also think about children are, I think in many cases they are taught well in school, uh, but they're also taught this two-dimensional view of the world. So there may be given a history lesson that has all of this great information, but you can actually show them, show him that they can, he can actually see Mount Rushmore Mm -hmm. and he can actually see Mexico and Mexico City and Baja. And it's not just this theoretical two-dimensional place on a map. For him, it is now filled with experience, including his toes in the sand and watching a turtle, a baby turtle trying to get to the ocean. All of those things are now part of his memories. Yeah, I think for all of us, the more of our five senses that we can engage, the more we'll remember it, yeah. the more it'll be impressed upon us. And we all feel that through travel. We're tasting the food, we're seeing, we're sure. smelling all of those senses. And as a child, he will remember the history lessons mm. because he's not just reading it in a book. And from our perspective, perspective as parents, there's nothing better than sitting, you know, you kind of told us about a little area here in Prescott where we could stay out in the national forest. And just a couple of days ago, Caspian was wearing a spiked helmet, a spiked, it looks like a stegosaurus, his underwear, and he was crawling around in the river building a dam. Uh, sure. And, you know, he's not looking at a screen. He's not, you know, doing, uh, watching television or, or doing, he's out there building it and he's barefoot Yeah, and he's just walking around and doing this. That's and, so amazing. Yeah. Well, and like he, Brittany he said, he was throwing he's, rocks. He was throwing pine cones and pieces of wood and seeing how they floated or mm-hmm. didn't. So there's lessons there in science. And, and then just, he went out and gathered wood for our fire because he wanted a fire. So he brought like a sizable bundle and he's crawling through the woods, just gathering this wood and telling us it's for the fire this evening. And, you know, just it's incredible. To how, watch how old is he? 
He just turned four well, in that's, December. In that's, December, that's amazing because the interactions that I had with him already this morning, I can tell that you treat him as a child. You treat him as another human along this journey with you. So when he was asking me questions and interacting with me, he interacted with me with confidence, mm-hmm. and he expressed himself, you know, uh, very thoughtfully, and and talked about how fast his race car was, and <laughs> and it was just so cool to see how comfortable he was with me as a total stranger to communicate in a way that I thought looked more like a six or a seven-year-old. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that word, Scott, because I want you to think about this. He doesn't know a stranger. Everyone he's ever met has been a stranger. And so to him, they're just other human beings. And he is no respecter of persons or of race or of size or of age or any other thing that we kind of have that in our head where we pre-judgment on someone, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe I'm talking to somebody who's elderly. I want to slow down. I I don't want to put that much. Or maybe I'm talking to someone's young and I want to raise my voice and be able sure. he doesn't know anything about that. Yeah. So everyone he meets to him, they're his friend. Yeah. And we saw him when we were in Mexico, uh, Brittany and I were walking, he was walking about 10 feet in front of us. And there was about a, uh, I'm guessing she was about 12 year old girl who just gotten out of school. She's carrying her book. She's walking down the street. He ran up, caught up to her, grabbed her by the hand, didn't even look at her, just grabbed her by the hand and kept walking down the street. And her mother saw this happen. And she's looking at this who little this kid. Two year old. He was two. He was two. And he's walking down the street with this girl and she looked down and she was just like happy that he was there. And it was just one of those moments in time for us as parents that we were like, wow, something right is happening Mm. here. You're giving him an opportunity for such self-confidence. What I have found confidence really is, is a an accumulation of our experiences. We feel less confident when we're less experienced about something. So you're giving him all of these genuine human experiences in ways that many children don't have, or in many ways are very encapsulated in those experiences. So he has this broad spectrum now of experiences that is going to give him so much confidence for life. And that's just a really beautiful thing to see in the short time that I've spent with you guys. And he's well-traveled. I mean, like I said, he just turned four. He's been to 47 of the lower 48 states. He has been to 30 of our 63 national parks. He has been a little bit in Canada. He's been over 2,000 miles into interior Mexico and he's done the entirety of the Baja Peninsula. And like I said, he just turned four. That's amazing. So he's got some experience behind him. I don't know that he'll remember it. an enviable all. passport already. Yeah. <laughs> it's just awesome to watch him yeah. take everything in. It's it, We get to live it through his eyes and it's precious. And how does having Caspian change the way that you plan or the way that you prepare your vehicle? I think maybe in the more notable ways, there's probably some nuances. What the more notable changes that you guys thought about your travels and about preparing a vehicle and planning for your trip with your son along? As far as planning our travels, hardly anything has changed along the whole way, even when he was a newborn. Like I mentioned earlier, we just, through our experience, we didn't feel that we had to change that much. We certainly don't have the nightlife that we used to have. (laughs) That's one of the biggest differences, just schedule-wise. We do everything together, and he's learned to go along with that. And as as far as the vehicle, it just is a matter of geometry as he gets bigger. And, and it's been a learning process yeah. because in the vehicle that we currently have, which we call our North American build, which we've made a lot of mistakes on, but we've learned from, it's going to be a lot different from the next vehicle that we'll be building out. The one thing I will say about Caspian is that we don't have a babysitter that goes along with us. Sure. And so, like you said, right now he's sitting in the studio kind of off on, on a couch off to the side, but uh, we are taking applications for a babysitter that would like to follow <laughs> us around the world. 
world <laughs> because, you know, sometimes it's difficult. We don't have that time or that flexibility to go out and just enjoy that little time together, yeah. but the trade-off is absolutely worth it. And maybe you'll encounter other families throughout your travels. I remember even through Central America, the number of French families that I encountered in RVs traveling around and, and maybe they would want, look for a babysitter from you the other way sure. around. You could trade some time. And also I noticed that in places like in the Americas, in Latin America in particular, having your kid with you for nightlife is fairly common. True. It's fairly common to go into a restaurant or a dance club or whatever. And people have got their kids there. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, again, that, that's, it's just normal for family to be so deeply integrated in the daily activities. Yeah. He changes the dynamic for international travel. Certainly. Um, we've noticed that at border crossings where, uh, you know, they're just kinder. They, they're like, you're a family. Let's get you moving. We roll Move. down the window so they can meet Caspian yeah. when yeah. we're going through checkpoints. <laughs> and he loves them. So he'll talk to them and he'll say, hola, you know, He'll yeah. just talk to them. It's it's great. That's wonderful. I have heard that particularly in Latin America is that they love the idea of, and obviously they do, they're very family oriented mm-hmm. culture. Seeing you with your child, I'm sure that is very endearing, even to the military checkpoint, that they can relate a little bit more to you guys as a couple with a child. And again, it probably makes them more mindful. Whereas I've experienced as a solo mm. male traveler, I've experienced other side of it where maybe they're more suspicious of my activities. Like, why are you all alone on this motorcycle in the middle of Peru? <laughs> right. You know, we're going to give this guy the full dressing down mm-hmm. to figure out why is he here? Right. Um, whereas a family, they're going to be a lot more understanding or maybe consider it or whatever. I think that that's a really beautiful part of traveling as a family. And what are some other things that you guys have noticed around your planning or where even you guys want to go? Has it changed where you want to go? Not so much. No, no. Oh, that's amazing. That's no. awesome. He's just part of our journey, you know? Yeah. And, and like I said, he, he doesn't know life apart from it. We don't know anything different since 2014. And so I think it's akin to people who bring a newborn into their home. There's no significant changes. They're not going to change the grocery store they go to or the church that they go to sure. or whatever. This is our lifestyle. Yeah. And so that just hasn't changed for us. He's just assimilated into that and become a part of it. It's so funny because it just shows how entirely ignorant I am of the subject. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, so what, what, like, did horns start coming out of your head when you, like, it just shows how little I know about that. Well, you're but, not the only one though, yeah. Scott. I think there's so many parents to be who automatically assume that they can't go hiking anymore. Yeah. They can't go backpacking or, you know, go overlanding for yeah. that matter. I just met a mom at a campground recently. She has three children and the youngest was about six years old. And she told me that when they first got married, she loved camping. They went all the time and this was her first time camping. To me, that's so foreign because Mm. we just brought him into it, but it's not true of everyone. And I do want to empower other moms, especially that they can do it. It's a beautiful thing. It's going to be hard at first, but then it's so rewarding. And it's all about what they know too, because we mentioned hiking. Caspian's actually quite an accomplished hiker. We set a goal for him to hike a mile for each year of his life. So in his first, uh, when he was one, he hiked one mile. When he was two, he hiked two. When he was three, he hiked three. And just the other day, literally just the other day down here in Table Mesa, he hiked four miles by himself. Now, when I say by himself, we're with him. Unaided. Unaided. We're not helping him scramble over anything. We're not helping him climb up things or down things. He's doing it all on his own. And he did four miles uninterrupted, unaided. That's that's amazing. It, it is, but he, this is his life. This is what he knows. I feel accomplished if I do four miles. I, <laughs> I just did that the other day and I, I'm still a little sore. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. 
Uh, that's very cool that he's able to do that with you. So now give the listener kind of a an overview of your experience as travelers in, since 2014. Now, you may have done some, now because you were in the Coast Guard, was that correct? I was. I'm, re- I'm retired from the United States Coast Guard. I served 20 years. And where did you travel in the Coast Guard? All over the world. I've actually been to Antarctica twice nice. and I've circumnavigated the globe on a ship. I've been to the Arctic Ocean three times. I've been to Australia eight times, Fiji, Hobart, Tasmania, you name yeah. it. I, I've been, all, I've actually stepped foot on every continent except for Africa. I've never been yeah. to Africa. It's the one that's eluded me. Yeah. So, so the day that Brittany and I fly into Africa to meet our, our vehicle there will be the very first time I go. I will then be able to say I've been on all seven continents. And, and how amazing cool. to do that with your family yeah. and have that experience together. That's yeah. wonderful. Uh, so talk about, uh, Brittany, your travels before you guys started, before you started your journey in 2014. Where did your travels take you in the world? So I was born in Canada, in Ontario, and my father is from Ontario, my mother from Alberta. Her mm. parents immigrated from Poland after mm-hmm. World War II, wow. and they met in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Mm. And travel was a part of my dad's life, especially. I mean, he did the hitchhiking Europe thing in the 60s, and he had been all over Canada and the United States. So that was in my blood. We ended up relocating to Texas as a family, and we would overland, even though I didn't consider it that at the time, in sure. our minivan with no air conditioning <laughs> from the Gulf of Mexico to the Northwest Territories for family vacation. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, as a child, it's what you do and you yeah. don't really think about it too much, but we were homeschooled. So I homeschooled through 12th grade before going to university and all the stops along the way were part of our education. And so again, that was ingrained to me, even though it ingrained into me as an adult, I can appreciate that Sure. and love doing that with Caspian and kind of replicating those experiences. Those cool. were my, my travel experiences were those family vacations and did some study abroad in Europe, but not nearly as well-traveled as Eric. So now give us the kind of the overview now that you guys are a couple and 2014 comes around and you start traveling and overlanding together. Uh, Give us an overview of where you guys went and how you traveled, what vehicle you used. So we lived in an apartment in Austin and we were starting our journey as business owners because we wanted the freedom to work together primarily was what we really dreamed of doing. But then along the way, we realized if we build our business on the internet, then we can travel anywhere where we have internet. We don't need to be working in our apartment, which is what we were doing every day. This was back in 2011, Scott, when digital nomadism, I don't know that it was a term. We had just figured out that, hey, if we can do everything we need to do on the internet, mm-hmm. then that's going to give us a measure of freedom. But we had to build up that business for three years. So understand that the idea of working together, creating our own business started back in 2011. So we're talking about 10 years ago. Sure. And it was intentional. It was intentional to build a business that we could work from online. It wasn't until- You were still in the Coast Guard at this point? No, I retired in 2010. So I retired just after. Sure. And so uh, it was very intentional to build a business that we could work from remotely before remote work was a thing before. And there were probably some people doing it, but you know, we're not the trailblazers of it, but it it wasn't a fad. It wasn't wasn't a term where everybody's working remotely. It was difficult to do because even at that time I was doing a lot of remote work 
in the software business that I was involved with for higher education. And it was very difficult to find reliable Wi-Fi, especially internationally. I, I can't remember the number of times that I would see a hotel that would have the Wi-Fi symbol on the door, um, which meant that they did have a Wi-Fi connection, but it, it never it never was no. connected to the internet. Right. Yeah, we you know, learned you, that. You know, that those two are not inclusive, that they... So that was definitely the Wild West when it came to working remotely. And it wasn't until like even Australia, 2011, very difficult to find reliable Wi-Fi. I could only really find it at McDonald's, for mm. example. Whereas since I go to Australia on a regular basis, each time I've gone, I've seen that infrastructure improve. And now many parks in the city have Wi-Fi sure. and they have, a, they have a much better infrastructure now. But yeah, 2011 would have been very challenging. Right. And so we intentionally built that business. Um, so that at the end of 2013, uh, we were able to have worked with our clients for three years. And back then all of our work was client-based. So they had a, a trust that we had built with them. We had spent time at their homes and having dinners with them or barbecues and gotten to know them. And we told them about this crazy idea that we had that we wanted to travel full-time. And we asked them, would you trust us enough to continue representing your business? Because we were doing social media for various companies. If we promise that you won't see any kind of decline in the or service difference or in difference service. in the service that we provide, but we just won't physically be here. And they had all gotten to know us. So they trusted us. And that was what allowed us in 2014 to get on the road. And yeah. we made it a priority. Like our priority was finding good, reliable internet to be able to take care of our clients so that we had that income stream still coming in. But all of a sudden we were able to open the front door of our RV and it was a new location every mm-hmm. single time. What was the tempo of that? That's something that I do like to ask for those that are working on the road. Did you work every other day or did you work every morning or did you work flat out every third day or how did that work? So at the time, it was more of a nine to five Monday through Friday commitment. We were very busy then. And so we would watch the world out our window, mm-hmm. eagerly waiting until the end of the workday. Then we would go explore or at least go out to eat. I mean, it was sure. already the end of the day. And eventually we developed a rhythm where we actually stayed two weeks in one spot because then we had a weekend in between yeah, that sure. we could do whatever we wanted to. Because before that, we were traveling every Saturday. And it so exhausting. it was exhausting. We were traveling every every Saturday, working Monday through Friday, forcing ourselves to go out on Sunday because it was the only full day that we had to explore. At one point in time, I turned to Brittany and I said, if we're going to continue at this pace, I'm going to be done. This is not burnout. This is not going to work. So we instituted a 250 mile two week rule, which became very fascinating because what ended up happening was when you limit yourself to 250 miles, you end up in towns like Lorman, Mississippi (laughs) or Apalachicola or Sop choppy places you've never heard of, but that actually exist. And yeah. those have actually been some of our greatest experiences mm. understanding the microcultures of the area that we're in. Totally we're off the stu- beaten path. Yeah, totally. And finding little local eateries and getting to know the local people of the town. And we just really enjoyed that aspect of it. But it also gave us that time, like Brittany said, two weeks gave us a full weekend in between mm. in which we could go explore. And so that was our rhythm for the first, I would say, four years. And I should clarify, because I don't think we did that at the time. We didn't know what overlanding was. No, sure. We had never even heard that term before. You're just life on the road. Life on the road. And we were RVing. So we yeah. considered ourselves full-time RVers, which at that time, we were on the very young side to be doing that. There were others out there who we quickly gravitated towards other working age RVers, but there weren't too many of us out there, which has very much changed in the past seven years. Past seven months. Yes, yeah. well, it's unbelievable. <laughs> unbelie- try to find a, a place to park a, a van near 
Sedona. Forget it. Oh, we just tried that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, we yeah. came out of shelter in place, which we did for six months in Seattle and the world had changed. We yeah. were still in an RV last August and places that we thought, oh, we can just roll in. We don't need a reservation because that had been our experience for six years. Yeah. All of a sudden we were at a tiny forest campground in West Virginia and it was full on a Wednesday night mm-hmm. and we couldn't believe it. <laughs> But, but, but here's the progression, Scott. This is what happened. And this is how we got kind of to where we are today. So what happened was we had this big 40 foot bus. It was a big 40 foot Tiffin Phaeton diesel, massive thing. Right. And that's what we started. It was small when we moved into it. Because we, we (laughs) thought it was small because we had moved out of an apartment into it, but we thought we needed all that space. And so for the first four and a half years, we used that platform. And then about three and a half years into it, Brittany started getting a little crazy. Now you got to understand I was driving the Jeep, Brittany was driving the RV. So she's driving this thing. And then she decided that she wanted to start going off grid a little bit. I wanted to do more wild camping. Sure. But in she's in touch with nature a little more. Yeah. yeah. In touch with nature in a 30,000 pound rectangle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she has no fear whatsoever. So she was taking it off road on shelf roads, uh-huh. just trying to find remote spots. Sure. And I was like, Hey, we're going to have to change th- this type of travel. Like people's jaws would drop when they saw this behemoth yeah, just sure. roll into this area. And so we were in, Jackson Hole. Outside Jackson Hole in Upper Teton View, which was a great little site up there. And she had taken this thing all the way up there. There's like three 90 degree turns, a shelf road. It's rutted. And she had taken this beast up there. And we were driving back into Jackson Hole to get some supplies. And unbeknownst to me, Brittany had been listening to a podcast about a family. And I'll I'll let her tell you about that. But this is what happened from my perspective. Then you got to hear it from Brittany. It's okay. (laughs) We're driving back into Jackson Hole and Brittany all of a sudden says, pull over, pull over, pull over. Now she, Brittany is an introvert. She has conversations with herself in her head before she ever brings an idea to the table to discuss with me. So for her to exclaim something like that, I, I thought I hit a squirrel. I didn't, I, I didn't know what happened. So I pulled over and I pulled into this parking lot and there was this big, what now I know is an overlanding box truck that was for sale. I don't even think I stopped the Jeep. She jumped out, ran up next to it, pointed to it and said, this, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I didn't have a clue as to what she was talking about. That was the day Eric found out what overlanding was. This was in 2018. So I had been listening to the Overland podcast, which is no more, but specifically they were interviewing the Snaith family from the UK and they had two young daughters. I believe they were four and six when they set out from the UK and they did a four year around the world trip. I was just learning what overlanding was, but my automatic assumption was I have a one-year-old. I I would love to do that, but I can't do that. But I kept listening and I was like, wait, well, it's been done before. I have no excuse. And if they can do it, I can do it. And we had been RVing and traveling the United States. We were kind of starting to feel like we knew that lifestyle. We were ready for another challenge Mm -hmm. because even though we were going to new places and loving that, the actual RV travel was getting a little... It had become routine. So so what I like to say is when we first started back in 2014, there was this spark, Scott. There was this spark that it was magical, Mm -hmm. you know? And then after about four and a half years of doing it, the spark was gone. The magic wasn't gone, but the spark was gone. It wasn't that it was the new normal. Yeah. It was just our new normal life. And then she had been listening to this podcast, but I had no idea that she was listening (laughs) to it. And so she just burst it out and said, this is what I want to do. There's this family. They drove around the world. If they can do it with two daughters, I can do it with one son. Let's go. And I was like, Oh, okay, let's go. You (laughs) know? And so that's kind of what started this whole process. We weren't sure if it was for us. And so we started with what we had. And I know that's, uh, 
something that we definitely would like to share about. Yeah. So we had the Jeep Wrangler already. It was for off-roading and rock crawling, but we weren't going to go out and buy a new vehicle and start all over again. We couldn't afford to, and we didn't even know, or do we even sure. like international overlanding? So we added a rooftop tent and a fridge and a few other things. And we went into interior Mexico about, oh. about six months after we found out what overlanding was. And because we're just crazy like this, we sold our RV. So oh, we, yes. we, we literally- <laughs> Jumping in the deep end. Oh yeah. yeah. We're, we're, you know, that's one of the things when we dream, we take our dreams seriously and we're not afraid to pursue, sure. pursue those things. So we literally sold our home, moved into the Jeep Wrangler and drove directly into Mexico. And that was Perfect. our first experience. Perfect. Yeah. With our two-year-old. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning of 2019. And how was that? If I remember correctly, you were in Mexico for about six months, right? No, um, it was- It was a, almost three months Almost we three were months. There so maybe it was time. two different trips it to was. Mexico. Yes. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it was a smashing success. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so at that time, we again, we were still working. We had even more work projects at that time and we needed internet Monday through Friday. So sure. we were actually getting Airbnbs for mm-hmm. about two weeks week stints. And then in between, we would do more of what a lot of people consider overlanding, which now looking back, we were overlanding the whole time. (laughs) But but it was a trial, Scott. Keep in mind, we had come up with this idea. And and I know Brittany doesn't like when I say we made a decision to drive around the world, but we did. We we had made a decision to drive around the world, but we hadn't explored what that actually looked like for us or whether or not it was something that was going to be a good fit for us or if we would even enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And so Mexico interior, our first trip in 2019 was literally a trial. It was, it was kind of, all right, does this work? Can we do this? Can we still handle our clients? Can we explore what's what's it going to be like with Caspian? Are we going to drive each other nuts? What's going to happen? And it was a smashing, smashing success. What was your favorite place that you stayed in mainland Mexico? Oh man, my family's going to kill me. So I have family in Puebla, Mexico, okay. and I got to meet uh, like 33 of my cousins. They came together for a family reunion. That and, is amazing. And, and, and his, and his I, mom is one of 17. Yeah, That's amazing. And, 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 and I love my family, but Puebla is not my favorite. I, I really enjoyed San Luis Potosí. Yeah. Um, which is the capital city of the state of San Luis Potosi. And there was just something magical about being in their downtown square with the cathedral and the uh, the architecture that was there and the yeah. food and, and the people that we met. It was pretty amazing. But we also made friends there and that right. made a huge difference. It always does, right? We connected with... Our friend Lilia, who was a member of a very active four by four club there. Mm. And we yeah. ended up getting to meet the whole club. They were doing some volunteer work in a tiny little village village that we mm. got to be a part of. And it was just very enriching. It gave us an idea of what we wanted it to look like more long-term. Right. I think, I think Guanajuato was one of my favorites in that area. <laughs> I really like. I I'm so go. busted. That's where she wants to go. So <laughs> That's where you'll go yes. next. That's yeah. when you start heading south, right? Yeah. So yeah, that Hidalgo, Guanajuato, San Miguel de Allende is very much occupied now by expats. Yeah, uh, you which hear English everywhere you yeah, go which there. Isn't, right. Which isn't a reason not to go. It's just a very different experience than like Guanajuato. And I remember I went into the Museo de los Momias, which is the museum of the mummies, which is a very unique thing to that area when they, when they bury their dead there because of the soil and the aridity of the area and whatever it basically makes instant mummies. I was about halfway through this thing and I see this mummy of an infant that looks like it's screaming. And that was basically the face that I made when I saw that. (laughs) And then of course it was like this, this like maze trying to get, and I'm trying to, I I think 
I got to get out of this place. It's the only time in all my travels that it was just too much. Yeah. It was too much when you see the the people who had been buried alive and you know their fingernails were filled with the wood from the casket yeah. trying to claw out. It was just too much. And I was like, get, wow. me, get me out of this right. place. But it's an amazing experience. And Guanajuato is just stunningly beautiful, mm-hmm. stunningly beautiful. Hopefully you guys get to go. Well, there. we're looking forward to it. And we're heading back into Mexico when we start our, our next trip. And we agreed that we each get to pick one city to stay in for a couple months uh, in that in that area. And I think Brittany's picked Guanajuato before this conversation. So we'll <laughs> see how that goes. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Really beautiful there. And there's a nice big kind of camping spot just outside of town. Um, that's very easy to get back into the village and stuff like that. It's just, yeah, it's very special. So that sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, one of the things we learned from that first trip in 2019 is that we love the cities too. Mm -hmm. both enjoy being in the middle of a city and just all the life going on around us. And then we love being able to take our vehicle out into the wild as far as we want to take it, which we could do with our Wrangler and have the best of both worlds. And that was extremely influential in helping us choose which vehicle we were going to drive around the world. And then the second trip that you were talking about was our trip in Baja, Mexico. That was at the beginning of 2020 when it was still a year full of promise, right? Before COVID hit, sure. we, we didn't know anything about it. It was at the beginning of February and we decided to head all the way down to Cabo. Mm. And this was going to be a different experience experience, as you know, from interior Mexico, where interior Mexico is rich with culture and immersion and yeah, different cultures within the country. And just, you know, that whole immersive experience of actually getting Mexico into your bloodstream. For sure. Baja was more off-road beaches, kind of like an extension of Southern California that speaks Spanish. Yeah. And uh, so- Has better food. I I don't know about that, Scott. You need to come hang out with us. Um, Mexico's got such good food. I love Baja food. But uh, we went into Baja at the beginning of 2020 and we did go all the way down to Cabo. But that trip, we actually spent, like Brittany said, in, in interior Mexico, we spent some time in Airbnbs. In the entirety of the Baja trip, we only spent two nights that were not in our rooftop tent. So the entire time we were in Baja, we were popping the tent every night and living off grid full time, so yeah. to speak. And so that was really important for us. It was as affirming far- that we could do that long term. Right. It had to do with the sustainability of this trip that we're looking to undertake. Can we handle it? Can we do that many nights back to back to back? What does that look like? And one of the things that we experienced was in Mulehe. And in Mulehe, there was a big box truck, kind of like the ones that we had been considering. And he he or she was trying to get into town. Oh, that's tough. Oh, yeah. That's a small village. It's a small village and and tight corners and plazas, low power wires and trees. And they eventually just parked outside the village and, and walked in. But like Brittany said, we also love exploring colonial areas a town. So we like to be able to pull in right up to the plaza and park. And so a lot of this gave pause to the idea of getting a Unimog or getting some sort of big box truck. So we started looking for other alternatives. And actually we were listening to the Overland Journal podcast. I think it was episode seven where you and Matt were talking about his Gladiator when he first got it. Sure. And we're Jeep fans to begin with. At that point in time, we started considering that as a platform. And uh, yeah, that ended up becoming the platform of our choice. It ticked all of our boxes that we were looking for, for a global vehicle. So now that you're making the transition from the JK to the JT, what were some of the things that you learned
learned from the JK project. Now it makes a lot more sense that it started off as as definitely a recreational vehicle. You guys were using it behind the RV to go have fun on the weekends. You wanted a high degree of capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what were some of the things that you you learned from that project that you wouldn't now incorporate into the Gladiator? I think the big thing was payload capacity. I think, and I I've stressed that ever since I really learned that lesson. There were there were three limitations that the Jeep Wrangler had for as an overlanding platform that we learned, and that was cargo space, payload capacity, and gas mileage. And I figured if we could overcome those three things, then we could actually make this platform work. And it does work if you do it correctly, but we didn't. And yeah. we overloaded. Uh, well, it's a Franken Jeep. Yeah. yeah. So it started for rock crawling and then we didn't just scrap everything sure. and start over. We built on what we already had. Which that makes a lot of sense. If we reserve as much of our resources as we can for the experience, mm-hmm. sometimes you start off with the wrong vehicle. I, I certainly did that myself. I mean, my first travels was in a 1953 M38A1 Jeep with a V8 in it, which was the worst possible combination <laughs> of everything. I would have been better off walking everywhere because I did a lot of that as it broke down around around Southern Idaho. But yeah, you definitely learn so much about the fact that the experience is the goal. Right. It would be easy for it would have been very easy for you guys to have taken months to like, all right, we're going to scrap this Jeep, we're going to start something new, and then you would have lost that trip to Mexico that you did and the trip to Baja. And it seems to me that when you guys came back from those trips, you really knew what you wanted. It wasn't an assumption of what you needed. You had a very clear idea. This is what we need. We were very confident. We were very confident in the decision and we base it on seven different factors. And Brittany's written an article about that as to why we chose that. Where is that article? It's on on our website at hourlesslife.com. Yeah. It's, I, it's called the uh, vehicle that it's called, here's the vehicle we're going to drive around the world. Okay. Yeah. And she talks about just these seven things. She's talking about the size of the bit the vehicle, the sustainability of the vehicle, the off-road capability, the budget, right? The payload capacity, the serviceability of the vehicle, and whether it's gas or diesel. We started doing a lot of research and originally I wanted a diesel Rubicon on 37s with one tons. And that's what I was going to take around the world. And the more I started researching that and listening to the podcast, I was like, well, that only has a 1200 pound payload capacity. Where am I going to source 37 series tires in Zambia? Um, What if I can't find ultra low sulfur diesel? And that all switched into what we're actually building out. And yeah. it, it's been based on the information and expertise from folks like yourself. Uh, Dan Greck has counseled us quite a bit uh, on yeah, his Dan, experience. Dan's such a great resource on that. He, he really is. Uh, Paul May has has given us some counsel up at Equipped Expedition yeah. Outfitters. Paul's um, the man. Yeah. And so so there's just a lot of people that have invested their, their time. And I can't be thankful enough for these folks because it's really helped to inform what we're doing. And we don't have all the answers. And I think that that's part of the journey, right? Yeah, we never will. <laughs> right. It, it, it's not just the the mile per mile journey, whether it's on-road or off-road, this is part of the journey. It's yeah. figuring out, I don't know what I'm doing with this, or I don't know what that's going to look like. The biggest lesson I think we learned from the JK to the JT is that, you know, when we first, when I first found out what overlanding was, we like basically went into Mexico, came back and immediately headed to Overland Expo East Sure, because we wanted to see what is this all about? And we get there and it's all very gear centric. And at the time you think just like we thought we needed that big 40 foot RV, we thought we needed everything. Right. And so we started saying, oh, well, we got to have that. 
let's buy that over there. And all of a sudden we, we look like the, uh, what are those people called? The Beverly Hillbillies? The Clampets. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah. We, we had the rig packed with everything. You know, we were grossly overweight. It was not good. And then the more we did this type of travel, the more we realized that we weren't using half the stuff that we had. And we started getting rid of stuff like it was going out of style. Like we were selling stuff, giving stuff to, away to people, really slimming down everything on our current build. And then with the new, the new build, we actually started out with a spreadsheet with the payload at the top of that spreadsheet. That's and great. I can tell you that as of two days ago, I think we were like 11 pounds underweight. And, and that, it's with Caspian as a 17 year old. Yeah. With his, <laughs> with his weight estimated at 17 years oh, old, and we were cool. still 11 pounds underweight. And if that tells you anything about how much we really learned from, from those experiences, but we don't regret it, Scott. Yeah, we don't, sure. we don't regret having those experiences yeah, you never should. because it's, They've, they're formative right. for sure. And a special thanks to this week's supporting sponsor, ARB. The latest episode of ARB Experiences stars Land Cruiser aficionado and my good friend, Kurt Williams. The Baja 1000 competitor has been a few places and seen a few things. His travels span Siberia, Greenland, and the Americas all the way down to Ushuaia, as well as several crossings of Australia. Kurt says of his adventures, anything can happen out there. Just one part not doing its job can ruin a whole trip. Investments in quality components pay back exponentially. You can watch Kurt's full story at ARBUSA.com. Brittany, when you wrote, I haven't read that article, but when you talk about sustainability as it relates to the Gladiator, what comes to mind for you around that? What did you talk about with relationship to that? I'm curious. It worked my interest. Absolutely. So definitely one of the things, and you hear this over and over, and I know you all have talked about it on the podcast, is interior living space. (laughs) That's kind of the refrain that you hear from people who do this type of travel. I know Tim and Kelsey from Dirt Sunrise have Mm -hmm. talked about it. I know um, Richard and Ashley from dust to glory have talked about it and we all have changed our rigs to have a little bit more interior living space because it rains it rains and it snows and it gets cold well and we didn't really realize going from RVing to now we're living in our Jeep Wrangler um, you're living outside you really are living outside and so we're regulating our temperature like reptiles we're trying to find the warmth or the cold and we wake up and I've, I've told Eric find me somewhere that's warm and we're going today because <laughs> I can't do this another night. And so with our Jeep Gladiator, we're getting the Alucab canopy camper sure. for the back. And it's not a lot of space. However, it is a place to retreat, be able to sit inside. We'll have a diesel heater in there to sure. give us a little bit more climate control. That For me, that's what it makes it sustainable because yeah. we're talking about a 10 to 15 year trip. This right, is right. a very long time that yeah. we're looking to do this. We need to have some comforts in order to continue doing it. Yeah. If you even look at uh, Graham and Louisa Bell, Mm -hmm. their journey, which was with both of their children Mm -hmm. who started off very small and now they're very big humans at the end of it. They eventually yeah, needed to make that shift, taking the 130 crew cab and turning it into a camper along the way. And I think that if we want to to make travel sustainable, like you say, over the long haul, we do have to acknowledge that the more comfortable we make it without compromising the things that are most important to us. Like if you want to go to the very remote places or down to these interiors of these of these old colonial villages, then we do make compromises. But if we make it a little more sustainable for travel where we can live comfortably and sleep comfortably and retreat when we need to get away from people or we're in a situation where we want to be a little more stealthy, mm-hmm. that does make a big difference. Absolutely. And we also have the added comfort of being able to get into the cities 
opportunities to stay at an Airbnb or a hotel because we've been on the road now for maybe a month and a half in the Jeep. I think two times I was quickly approaching burnout and we just needed to go somewhere and have some walls and refresh and feel like a human being again. Mm -hmm. And our Jeep Gladiator will allow us to do that. We will be able to get into most parking garages. Yeah. And it depends on the, on the mode of travel. Like if I'm on a motorcycle, I need to find a place usually every three days because I need to get reconnected with my business and I need to take a shower usually. I mean, it's just, you have to find that rhythm that works for you. I remember I was in Lyon, Nicaragua. When I had driven down to the Darien Gap, I used a vehicle that was made by Earthroamer that was a Jeep, JK-based camper. And it had a flip open top on it, very similar to what you would see from AT Overland. And and Earthroamer was really the ones that pioneered a lot of that micro camper technology. So maximum capability Rubicon Wrangler that had been recertified to a higher gross vehicle weight rating. It had a shower built into it, a toilet built Mm -hmm. into it. It had queen size bed on a very unique mattress frame, all composite construction. And I remember even trying to get through Lyon, that Jeep was too big because it was a wide axle Rubicon, very, very narrow street. So I'm up on the curbs to get through. And so you're right. If you, even a full size American pickup is massive in most places of the world. So then you're restricted to the routes that, uh, that the commercial trucking right. routes that people use for that, which means it works. That's why it works to go around the world in a Unimog. Sure. You just find out what are the trucking routes and that's what you're stuck on. But, but it's a trade-off and it was one we weren't willing to yeah. make. And we could say that confidently yeah. based on our experience in Mexico, yeah. where otherwise we would not have known how important that was to us sure. if we hadn't gone out and experimented first. You're going to have the Alucab camper on the top. What are some other high points of what your goals are around the project? We've been very fortunate uh, to work with some great brands on this build that have gotten behind this trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so they know we're doing a 10 to 15 year journey. So Brian Fulton and the team at Goose Gear are going to build out the entire back end, also going to do a 60 seat delete there. Okay. Uh, Andy and the team at Warren have uh, connected us with a 12S Xeon winch uh, to go on the front of there. We still don't know what front bumper we're going to have on there, sure. but uh, it looks like rock hard four by four has an aluminum bumper that is full length and weight has a lowered winch plate to allow for the airflow to come through. Sure. And it weighs 37 pounds. If you can believe that. That's aluminum. amazing. Yeah. So we're really Very interested. similar to the weight of the factory bumper. Um, it's actually 40 pounds lighter well, than the factory rubber. Yeah. No, no, plastic. not plastic. The- plastic bumper. Yeah, it's actually, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think that's what we found out. Four pounds is wow. the stock. Yeah, I think that's what we researched and oh. I could be wrong, Scott, I'll have to double check on that, but I believe it was like 30, like 40 pounds lighter than the stock bumper. Wow. Obviously Red Ox is one of our sponsors. So they're hooking us up with all the gear for that. Uh, Blue Ridge Overland gear, cool clothing. I mean, so many great companies uh, equipped expedition outfitters. Paul May is getting yeah. us a national Luna fridge. Uh, we just that's talked. going to go on the 60 seat delete. So the fridge will pull out. It'll slide from out. the back seat. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense because it keeps the fridge in the HVAC of the cabin. So the fridge isn't working as hard while you're driving. Right. right. And um, then uh, Cascadia four by four is hooking us up with some solar panels. Um, I mean, there's just so many great companies that, that have 
said, wow, we love what you're doing. You've captured our vision. They said, hey, we want to partner with you. We want to get on board. Lifesaver, who I know you just talked about recently in a a podcast, uh, they're connecting us with one of their units as well. And so, but what I was going to say is that this is a lot of cool gear and we're extremely thankful, but it's not even about the gear. I mean, the the gear is a means to an end. It's it's Mm -hmm. what's allowing us to make this type of travel. I guess, you know, I share all this because there is an excitement. There is something neat to have these companies reach out and say, hey, we, we think what you're doing is incredible and we Mm -hmm. want to be involved in this journey with you and we're really appreciative of it but it's really about the journey it's really about for sure the the people and you know we we love interacting engaging immersing ourselves in different cultures that's something that both Brittany and i are very passionate about and we want to be more concerned with the people who are cooking our meal than the meal that we're having yeah you know what i mean learn their story and that type of thing and show caspian this i did want to mention there, there are a lot of really cool things happening with the build itself and it's going to be a really, really neat vehicle. Something oh, it'll be so fun to showcase it at some point. It so. will. And it'll be fun to show to other people. But I, I guess, um, you know, the more we're doing this, the less gear centric it is for us. And I just wanted to make sure philosophically that that was clear because when we first started, when I went to that first expo, it was all about the gear. Like, yeah. you know, I, I had to have this, I had to have everything that was out there. I wanted it all. And now like I said, we find ourselves getting rid of things more often than not. Well, and I was so adamant that we weren't going to take debt around the world with us. And so we were considering a lot of vehicles that were not within our budget. And we said, well, it's 10 to 15 years. Maybe we should, it'll all even out. But in the end, we decided that wasn't something that we were willing to do. And so when we sold our last RV, it's the first time we've been debt-free in our marriage. And it feels so good. And we're reinvesting those funds from the RV. Come here, baby. And and what's going on, Caspian? Oh, we got, we got an iPhone issue. All right, let's check this out. (laughs) Thanks for saying hi, Caspian. (laughs) One of the things that we have found in all of these conversations that is a fairly consistent theme is that the people who have been able to travel long-term around the world, it is almost always that they've done it debt-free. My life didn't truly change until I got rid of debt. And it seems that any decision that we make that where we're compromising to maybe get a new shiny thing, um, but then at the cost of going into debt to do that, we should always ask ourselves, why can't we afford it today? If we can't afford it today, right. we really can't afford to pay for it for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. I do find that that is a very consistent theme is that we shouldn't mortgage our future to try to have a, a shinier object today that we really don't need to try to impress people that we don't don't really care about and they don't really care about what we own. So, or don't own or borrowing or renting in a way. I I can agree with you more, Scott. And, and the good news is that we are, we are going to be debt free when we take off around the world. Yeah. So the entire build that we're doing is well within our means. Like Brittany said, there were certain vehicles that we were looking at just thinking, look, this is a massive trip. Maybe it's worth investing in Mm -hmm. this and and making some sort of payments. But at the end of the day, we decided, no, we're going to, we're going to travel the world debt free. Yeah. So and the, and the risk too is if you leave to go around the world in let's say a $500,000 vehicle or a $300,000 vehicle that you're making payments on, it is common for people for those vehicles to not make it to the other end. Right. They end up in a river. Yep. They end up stolen. It is very difficult to get insurance on those kinds of RVs internationally. I have been able to secure insurance at times, but it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. So even driving that Earth Roamer Jeep down to Panama, it was a $5,000 policy. It cost me $5,000 to protect that asset. It definitely is something 
that if we can't afford to lose the vehicle, which of course we don't want to have happen, but if we can't afford to lose the vehicle, then it could put us and our family at great financial risk. I'm just really proud of what you guys have done. And I think that that's a very consistent theme. I have found very few sustained round the world travelers that operate on a lot of debt because it just doesn't seem to work at the end of the day. So that's great that you guys are doing that. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, we're um, we're really excited about that part of it uh, because for us, we want to be able to have something left over to actually enjoy the journey, right? Yeah. So um, we're not not at our cap. And honestly, a lot of those sponsors that I mentioned have really helped us significantly at least get our foot out the door and across the first border. So- And a lot of times that that is the difference that a sponsor can make is they can just give you that little bit of an edge around a project where you can get it closer to what you need it to be. And it's interesting for those that are listening, oftentimes it sounds like someone is getting something for free. There's never anything that comes for free in life. So there's a great deal of responsibility that now comes with using this person's product. You really can't speak about it editorially because now there's a conflict of interest. So there's all of these compromises that come with sponsorship, but they can oftentimes be that one edge that gets you closer to the quality of equipment that you need mm-hmm. in order to complete your journey. So sponsors do have their place, but they're, it's never free, right? right. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. And and we've been very fortunate. We, we have gotten a lot of offers from, from folks that we've said, thank you for considering us, but the answer is no. Yeah. Because for us, we don't have a garage. We don't have a house. I don't have anywhere to store it if I don't like it. I mean, yeah, it's either sure. going on our bodies, on the vehicle or inside the vehicle. Yeah. So I'm really thankful for our list of sponsors that we're working with. They're very hand-selected and curated. Yeah. We, um, we really told all all of them, whether you sponsor us or not, we're yeah. getting your product That's, on our vehicle yeah. because these are the ones that we wanted. Yeah. Right. For example, we had another refrigerator company, I won't mention who, reach out to us and say, hey, we're interested in you know connecting you with a fridge for your journey. But Brittany had already decided on a National Luna fridge. Yeah. At that time, we had made the decision, we're taking a National Luna fridge on this journey. Yeah. And it wasn't until after that point in time that somebody connected me with Paul and said, Hey, do you know, Paul, he's the national Luna distributor. And I said, I don't. He said, let me introduce you to him. It was actually Jim at Red Ox nice. said, Hey, let me introduce you to Paul. Yeah, those two are close. Yeah. Friends. He's yeah. a, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. And I talked to Paul for maybe an hour and a half, yeah. didn't ask him for anything. And at the end of the conversation, he said, well, I'd like to connect you with one of these fridges. So we would have bought it. And Paul knows this. I told him whether you give us this fridge or you don't, we're yeah. taking a national Luna fridge on this journey yeah, because sure. we had already made that that decision. And that's, that's held true for all our sponsors. We're, we're taking a Warren Winch, whether the team at Warren gave it to us or not, yeah. that a Warren Winch was going on the front of our vehicle. So. Well, you've, you've mentioned all high quality components, which is a great place to start because it's very difficult to replace this stuff in the middle of Africa. Right. So yeah, we need it to last. We need yeah. it to be durable and we're going to put it to the test. You know, we're going to put all, all this gear to the test. Brittany, Talk a little bit about your career that you have developed as a writer. Uh, what are some of your passions around writing and, and the things that you've learned around writing? And maybe share that with with the listeners of how you've made that also another source of revenue for you and your family. I think I wrote my first story when I was seven. <laughs> It still exists. Eric has seen it. In my story, I was on a rowboat crossing the ocean with two deckhands because I was the captain. We encountered a dragon (laughs) 
And the refrain was, as a captain, I have to be brave. (laughs) I love it. And writing was a way for me. I journaled like a fiend through my preteen years and even my teen years. And it was my way to make sense of my world. I could have some kind of problem. Something was bothering me. Maybe I didn't even know what it was. Mm. And I could start putting it out on paper. And by Mm. the end, I had solved the problem and come to peace with it, whatever it was. And so actually this format of being on a podcast is very difficult for me because I don't think on my feet. Oh, you're doing doing great. Thank you. Thank you. But I I like to put it down on paper because I can think about what I want to express and use the right words. And so writing is a major passion of mine. It was a source of heartache through many of our years of self-employment because it wasn't the primary thing that I was doing. And actually through our social media marketing company, we started a blog about the city of Austin, which is where we lived at the time, it was supposed to be a showcase for what we could do through our business, building a client base in a city that we had just moved to. And so we were writing a lot for the Austinot, which was the name of it. But when we got on the road, we couldn't write anymore because we weren't there to interview the business owners and talk about the events. So that was part of what we had to do was build a team of writers. Mm -hmm. Well, then I wasn't writing anymore. I was the editor and we got 2000 articles on that blog. It ended up being a really large blog that we sold last year to help bankroll this trip. But that was really hard to be the editor and not to be the writer. And it was something that was lacking in my life that as we started winding down a lot of our business projects in anticipation of this global travel, that I really evaluated, this is what I want to do. I want to write. And I started thinking about myself as a writer, describing myself as a travel writer. I was so privileged when I got to start writing for Expedition Portal and started to um, share my experiences there. And Winnebago. Yeah, I wrote for Winnebago a lot as we were RVing and they gave me a platform to talk about being a mom on the road, traveling full time, which was really important to me. And that's definitely a responsibility that I feel that we've talked about a little bit, but I really do want to empower parents through my writing as share the person who Caspian is and what travel has been for him and how we've accomplished that because it certainly doesn't happen by accident and to tell stories that inspire people and show them that they can do it too. No, you do such a wonderful job with the writing and we're so grateful that you've contributed as much as you have for Expedition Portal and for Overland Journal and hopefully more and more of that into the future. So thank you for that time. And it's a a flexible way to earn some supportive income while you're traveling. Absolutely. If you have a combination of high quality imagery with the written word, it is certainly a way to augment some expenses. It is. And we've needed to go to more project-based work as we have moved away from Mm -hmm. internet connectivity. Because before, like I said, it was nine to five, Monday through Friday, Mm -hmm. we had commitments. Our clients expected us to be accessible and to be available during that time. And so as we started to evaluate what changes do we need to make in order to do this travel, it was clear that we couldn't rely on the internet like that anymore. We saw that in Baja, which oh, I fought with internet. (laughs) 
the whole way oh, through yeah. Baja. It's a challenge. I was getting up at five before Caspian woke up and I was working and I would work after he went to sleep because the internet tended to be better on both those ends of the day. And uh, yeah, so writing is definitely a way it's more project based. You mm-hmm. can do it on your schedule. All you have to do is meet a deadline. And that's so much more flexible yeah. than what we were doing before. Very, very cool. Now, I always like to ask when I have guests on the podcast, what some of your favorite books are. And I've been warned, Brittany, that uh, <laughs> we might need to have a separate podcast for you and I just to discuss that alone. Maybe we'll start, Eric, with you. What is your couple top favorite books that you would recommend to others? Well, you know, we just read Into the Wild uh, with Christopher McCandless. Sure. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, fascinating information in there and just his mentality it's described by the author uh we just read that together that was really special and Krakauer is an incredible yeah. writer yeah i i want to drag him along with us <laughs> for me i i've actually been reading some of dan's books uh dan greck's books um just because these are the these are the travels I want to take right now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, my, my favorite writers tend to be fiction writers and, sure. and whatnot. And, um, that's but, okay too. But, 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 know, but, but right now, right, right now I'm just, I'm like a fire hose. I'm like consuming information at just such a rapid pace. And I actually find myself spending more time on forums, uh, like sure. expedition portal and just gathering information or reaching out to people who have done this type of travel to, you know, pick their brain or just get their insight on something. Uh, so right now that's, Dan's books are excellent for perspective. He does such a wonderful job of painting this optimistic view of the places that he's been. He's been very remote. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of it, he just has all these really beautiful insights. And he's such a regular guy too. When you meet him in person, you know, like I think people really approachable, just a really neat guy. Those (laughs) Canadians. I think he's Australian. Maybe he started off in Australia. He's lived a lot in Canada. But, you know, I I mean, I, in the military, I read, you know, uh, Sun Tzu, Art of War and, and, and those types of things. Albert Speer's Spandau. I mean, I was really big into history and biographies and that type of, uh, that type of work. But right now that's all on the back burner right mm-hmm. now, because I just feel like, I mean, heck it's, what is it? April right now? Yeah. When it's, we're recording this. It, it's April when we're recording this and we're leaving in August. Yeah, it's quick. I have a very, very small window. So my focus is like laser focused right now into what we're doing. I'm, yeah, that's I, great. Well, it's so rewarding too, right? So that's why when Brit- when we're driving, Brittany actually reads to me from her tablet, oh, which is cool. why we just read Into the Wild together. So, Brittany, what are some of your a book that you most often recommend or give to someone that you meet? That that's you a hard about? question. I So I really wanted to talk about my Theodore Roosevelt books. Yes. <laughs> so Let's I, do that. I love Edmund Morris's three-part biography of Theodore Roosevelt. And my high school government teacher was the one who inspired me to start looking into Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, he was not a perfect man, which for many years when I was younger, I thought he was. He was a hero to me. And now I appreciate that, like all of us, he had many parts to him. But he really leaps off the page in Edmund Morris's series because it's three parts. He's so in-depth throughout the whole lifetime of Roosevelt. And, And 
One of the first books I read to Eric out loud was called The River of Doubt. Mm. And it was about Roosevelt's final expedition. And it was an expedition in the truest sense. No, this was after Africa. It was just a few years before his death. And he was exploring one of the tributaries of the Amazon that had never been mapped before. A true expedition. So they were doing the actual mapping as they went along and portaging. And he, I believe he was in his 50s (laughs) at the time. And he had lived a very difficult life. And so physically he was dealing with an accident that he had had previously in life where his leg hadn't healed properly. And of course, all the bugs and the disease were just laying them out and he almost didn't make it. His his son was there with him. Roosevelt said, leave me here. He said, don't carry my body out because I don't want to be a weight for the expedition. So it was at that point and he grew delirious and he was reciting poetry in his delirium. And that's an amazing book is The River of Doubt that if anyone wants to start getting into Roosevelt's story, that's actually one that I would Mm. recommend. Oh, that's a beautiful recommendation. Well, let's see if we can uh, grab Caspian and have him come on to the last few minutes of the podcast here, if you guys are okay with that. Absolutely. absolutely. Mr. Scott is going to ask you some questions and I'm going to turn this down so you can talk and I'm going to put this on you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Well, how you doing, Caspian? Good. Tell me about your truck. Well, it's remote controlled. Oh. And we needed to fix it. So we wanted some time to fix it. Yeah. And I thought we could try and fix it after the the thing that we're doing right now. Yeah, this is really cramping your style, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All the, you know, this adult stuff when we could be fixing remote control cars. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So do you, does your remote control car have a name? It's called... Drive through oil. Drive through oil. I like that. I it make, sounds like a Land Rover. Because I drive it through <laughs> oil. Yeah. Perfect. And what's what's the name of your mom and dad's Jeep? Guardian. Guardian. I like that. Do you know how it got the name? Nope. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the on the podcast, Caspian. I appreciate you're, it. You're welcome. <laughs> Well, I could stay on it longer. That's right. Well, I think you would be our most interesting guest, no doubt. Especially since you got this awesome truck that's ready to go around the world, right? Caspian, can you tell Mr. Scott what you're most excited about driving around the world? I'm most excited about going to that meatball. Oh, okay, so tell me about the meatball. Well, he's a little meatball filled with air who took balloon, but he has wheels that drive on the ground. Can I drove him no matter where I went, I drove him there. Oh, wow. So a meatball with wheels. So this is a balloon animal okay. in Mexico okay. that does have wheels and it has a string. Okay. And Caspian got one when he was two. This in is San very Luis cool. Potosí, so and then we gave it to another little boy. Oh, that was very nice of you to do that. That is awesome. Well, Caspian, I'm so excited about your journey that you're going to have thank over you. the next couple decades. And Brittany and Eric, thank you both so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you and your family and all of the people that you're inspiring with your journeys. Now tell us how people can find out more about you. What's your Instagram and website and all that? So we're Hourless Life. Yeah, that's what I would say. Wow, this life. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's awesome. So it's H O U R. It's H O U R. That's right. Hourless Life. That's perfect. We recently started our YouTube channel, and so we are total newbies, but it's really that's right. Really fun to share there. Well, again, thank you all so much for being on, and we thank all of you for listening. And we will talk to you next time.